being here with you. Again, I know we've said this before already, but time or coming back for your second, third visit, we're so glad you're here with us. Please do stick around and connect with someone in our church community. Uh, yeah, we are in the season of Advent, uh, meaning we celebrate Jesus' comings. The first coming is uh, we celebrate as, as Christmas, and the second coming is coming, Jesus' coming that we long for. And so we've been praying about this this, this whole time. So today, um, we're going to look at Jesus' first coming and what the Bible has to say about that and how it really impacts us or how it ought to impact us. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read from verse 1 uh, to verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Again, this is a Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and here he is talking about uh, the, uh, the, the coming of Christ, um, his first coming. So let me go ahead and read this passage for us, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We'll pause there. This is God's word. And so, this is one of the classic passages in the Bible where uh, we get to learn about what well, the theologians call it the doctrine of incarnation. Incarnation simply means in flesh, right? Incarnation means in flesh. And so here, Paul is talking about Jesus is coming, Jesus is Jesus taking on flesh to the Christians in this church. And so I want to highlight three things for us. I want to look at the description of Jesus' incarnation. Number two, the application of Jesus' incarnation. And then number three, um, ways to live like Jesus. Okay, so description, application, and then and, and how we can live like Jesus. So number one, description of Jesus' incarnation. Look with me once again at verse six. We'll read verse six through, six through eight here. It says, uh, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
um, theologians, commentary, uh, commentators say that this was actually a, a, a song, a song uh, that was sung by the early church, early Christians. Meaning, I think what we could say is this is not a, a story that people made up along the way. No, but this was from the very beginning after Jesus' incarnation and resurrection. The early Christians believed in this amazing story, and they, they sang about it regularly. So what we're talking about today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that is we're talking about a historical event that took place, that Jesus, the Son of God, actually took on flesh and became a man. So here Paul says that in verse 6, that Jesus was in the form of God, and then he took on the form of a servant, verse 7. And then he was found in human form, in verse 8. So we could summarize this by saying Jesus was in the form of God, but he took on form of a servant, a form of a man. So I think where we could kind of start here is just let's briefly think about what is, what, what, what does it mean when, when Paul says Jesus was in the form of God? Right? I think we could kind of say, you know, what, what kind of nature did God have? Just a couple of thoughts. One, well, we know that God is glorious. Right? When, when the scripture talks about God being glorious or, or a glory, it, it means actually, it means um, heaviness. So when the Bible says God is glorious, it's saying God is weighty. Like everything that he says, everything that he does has substance, but it's, it's, it's heavy, it's powerful, it's beautiful, it, it, it moves things, it stirs things up, it, there's substance in who God is. And so in essence, that's what we mean when we say God is glorious, God is weighty, and God is heavy. And this past summer, uh, my family and, and I, we went to, uh, we drove out to Acadia Park in Maine. I drove up, and uh, we're driving one night, and my, my kids, you know, all of a sudden tells me to stop the car and pull over. And so, you know, we pulled over, and, and um, you know, we got out of the car, and uh, they asked me to stop because they, they, they recognized how beautiful the stars were. Like, these are teens, okay? And so they're usually on their phones, but for just for a brief moment, they saw, they looked up and they saw these stars and we got out of our car and we looked up and we just stood there for about five minutes. Uh, it, it was amazing. These stars seemed so close, so bright that it, we felt like we could actually grab, like reach out and grab some of them. It was, I mean, literally it was, it was breathtaking. We just kind of stood there for five minutes, just just looking, and you know, my kids were trying to take pictures. It's, it, was, I mean, it was amazing. Well, that's one of the ways that we recognize God's glory. The scripture tells us in Psalm 19, it says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hand. So one of the ways that we see God's glory is through nature, when, especially when we recognize how beautiful, magnificent it is. We pause and we say, God, you're so beautiful. You're so glorious. That's what Scripture tells us. Um, again, there's a, there's a passage in the book of Exodus when Moses is talking with God, and God says, You've, I've found, uh, you have found favor before me. And, and Moses says, God, show me your glory. In Exodus, Exodus 33, God, show me your glory. And God says, well, you can't see my face, but I'm going to pass by you. And you'll see the backside of my glory. And as God passes by, this is what God says. He says, the Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses says, God, show me your glory. God passes by and he says, I'm going I'm to allow my goodness to be revealed to you. God passes by and this is what God declares, right? God, God basically says, here is who I am, my character, right? I'm, I'm full of mercy, gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I, I keep my steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is. God's glory is His character. Right? This is, God is beautiful. So I think we could summarize this, this section when, when Moses sees God by saying God is both gracious, God is full of grace and truth. That's who God is. God comes and God says, Moses, this is who I am. And Moses sees the backside of God's glory and he comes down. And in Exodus chapter 4, people are terrified. Like they can't go near Moses. Why? It's because Moses' face was reflecting the backside of God's glory. Now think about that, right? Moses' face, face was reflecting the backside of God's glory. But it was so radiant, Moses had to put up a veil over his face. People could not go near him. God is glorious. God is beautiful. This is who God is. God, Jesus, was in the form of God. Jesus was glorious. Now, we could talk many other things about God, but let me just highlight a few, few more things. Right? God, in terms of knowledge, God is infinite in knowledge. Isaiah 46 says, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. But God is infinite in knowledge. In terms of power, God is infinite in power. We just went through the story of Jacob. Do you remember when God showed up in Jacob's life? This is how God introduced himself. He says, I am God Almighty. This is how God introduces himself to Abraham and to Isaac. Because because. The thing that God was calling them to do, leave your family, fill the earth, multiply, be fruitful. I mean, those things were impossible to Abraham and impossible to Jacob. But God says, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai, right? I am God Almighty. Go fill the, uh, multiply, be fruitful. Something that they could not do on their own, God introduces himself and says, I am all powerful. I will make this happen in your life. In terms of time, God is eternal. We read this last Sunday, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, right? That's Jesus, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God. In terms of space, God fills the universe. 
Remember when David cried out in Psalm 139, he said, Where should I go? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Well, wherever David goes, God is there. It's not because God is, you know, God is like meeting him at some place or looking for David. No, every, the whole universe is filled with God's presence. And what that means is right here, right now, uh, God is here. God fills the universe. He, in terms of space, that's who God is. We, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to uh, the people in Athens, he says, we have our being, we move in, in God's being. Like, we, we cannot escape God's presence. That's who God is. Now, we could go on and on and on about God's attributes and characters and, and nature, but in essence, that's what, that's what Paul is talking about, right? Jesus had the form of God, glorious, all-powerful, but it says here, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. In King James, it says, he made himself of no reputation. And NIV translates this as, he made himself nothing. The idea is that Jesus gave up these privileges. He didn't hold on to them. He emptied himself and he took on human form. Now, even as, human, as a human, Jesus did not become an important, significant human being. Right? He, didn't, he didn't become a king or a ruler. No, he was born into a poor family. Uh, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, death on a cross. Uh, one of the most painful and humiliating deaths uh, during that time. This is... Paul is saying, this is who Jesus, this is Jesus' incarnation. He had the form of God, glorious, beautiful. He took on form of a man, became humble, servant, became obedient to death. This is, this is um, Jesus' incarnation. Uh, when I was 17 years old, um, I actually had a job as a janitor at a uh, Fairfax hospital which is off Gallus Road, about 10 minutes from here. I grew up in this region. My friend had told me, hey, you know, I, I got a job here. They pay you pretty well. It's pretty easy. Um, and he worked at the, at the cafeteria there. And so he said, you know, why don't you come and apply? And I think it was after my junior year in high school. And so I said, oh, this is great. You know, I have about a month. I could work and make some money. So I, I go in for an interview. And the, the person who was in, interviewing me said, uh, there's no, no more spots for you, but we do have... Uh, the Department of Environmental Services, and we have a spot open there if you like it. And back then, I didn't know exactly what that meant. Uh, the environmental Services sounded kind of nice and, I don't know, uh, fancy. Uh, yeah. So I said, okay, uh, I, uh, yeah, sign me up. It was a jan janitorial work. So I get there. I have a training for a, a couple of days. They, they showed me how to mop the floor um, the right way, and they you know, taught me how to use certain uh, machines to clean the floor, and and so everything was going okay. It was, I mean, it was, you know, it was okay. I just basically ended up cleaning uh, the hallways, the rooms, the windows. One, until one day, the supervisor called, calls me and, hey, do you think you could go down to the bottom floor of the hospital and just try to clean the bathrooms on that floor? And I said, sure, all right. And I get down there and um, 
I still remember, you know, I, so there were some bathrooms. It's, it's the part of the hospital that no one really goes. It was just dark and um, no one was really around. And so I, I still remember opening this door to this bathroom. It was just one small bathroom, like one toilet, a sink. I opened this door and uh, the three walls around the toilet was uh, covered with feces. I mean, it's, I think the toilet exploded and I opened the door and... and um, the smell, the stench, the, the walls covered with brown-ish stuff. Um, and just, I just stood there for a second, and I was like, oh my gosh, what should I do? You know what I did? I got on my knees, my hand. No, I didn't do that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I closed the door. And actually, to be honest, I don't know what happened. I, like, I, I can't remember what I did, actually. But I'm pretty sure I didn't clean the, clean the bathroom. Like, I probably left it alone. I don't know. I, I either maybe blocked it out of my memory. I'm not sure. Um, but I do remember seeing the bathroom distinctly. Don't know what happened afterwards. Um, I just share that because I wonder what it was like for Christ to leave His glory and take on human flesh to experience all the pain of human life, see sin, brokenness, experience disappointment, um, pain, betrayal, and ultimately humiliating death on a cross. And what was, we can't begin to imagine, and none of us will really fully understand what it felt like for the Son of God to leave the form of God and take on flesh. I mean, it's not in our, we don't have the capacity to understand that. But the ideal is Jesus left something that was beautiful, glorious, and became a servant. Ultimately to die a humiliating death on a cross. That's incarnation. That's the story of Christmas, that God became a human being. My point number two is the like, application of Jesus' incarnation. Now, Paul here in this passage is not trying to help us understand or even appreciate incarnation. What Paul is after here is he's trying to apply the doctrine of incarnation into our life. The church in, in Philippi was a beautiful church, if you read the whole epistle. They were generous. They gave sacrificially. They actually persevered, endured persecution. So Paul celebrates them. But there were divisions in the church. There were disunity in the church. And so that's what Paul here says, I want you to be like-minded. I want you to have the mind of Christ. I want you to be unified. I want you to love one another. And the example, the exhortation that Paul gives is for, for this church to be like Christ. Right? Paul, Paul here says, have the mind of Christ. Have the attitude of Christ. Have the life of Christ so that you'll be unified, so that you can love one another. Let me just, let's just, let me read this, read verse 3 here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Just pause there. This is impossible, 
right? I mean, this is hard. How do we, how do we, how do we do nothing from selfish ambition or vain? How do we count others more significant than ourselves? Now, how do we look at other people's interests above our own? I mean, how do we do that? But that's what Paul here is encouraging this church to do. He goes on, right? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus' incarnation. So here, what Paul is after is not, not correct doctrine or correct theology. No, what Paul is after is this is who Jesus is. This is who our God is. Now have this God apply who He is into your life so that you can begin to love one another. Uh, can you imagine, even though this is impossible or, or, or difficult, can you imagine if we really lived this out? Um, our relationships will be, be transformed, absolutely. Um, I would imagine that uh, some of the wars uh, between nations will be healed. Community conflicts will be mended. Um, broken relationships, friendships, marriages will be healed. Paul says, this is it. This is the key. Jesus' incarnation, who he is, who he was, how he lived. If you could apply this, if you could apply this into your life, if you could have this mind of Christ in your life, there will be relational healing that will take place. So, I mean, how do we, how do, we do this? Right? This, is, uh, this is God's calling for us people, God's people, um, that we... Yeah, we begin to consider others' needs above our own. I mean, I mean this, how do we do this? I'm going to share two things as we, as we close. One, um, we need to have faith in God's promises or God's word. Look at verse 9 with me. So Paul is talking about Jesus' incarnation, how he humbled himself in the verse 9. Uh, Paul says, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' story doesn't end in incarnation, right? It doesn't end in, in his humiliation. No, it ends with actually exaltation. God exalts Christ. This is the paradigm of the Christian life is that um, Jesus again and again tells us the way to live, way to have life, way to enjoy life, way to have joy, way to, way to have full life is to give your life away. Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. First Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, at the proper time he will exalt you. This is the paradigm of the Christian life. We give ourselves away. We, we pour, we empty ourselves, we serve others, because it's by serving, by giving ourselves away that we find life. The reason why some of us here, we feel, um, I don't know, we, we feel empty or there's a sense of lack of fulfillment, maybe it's because, it's, it might not be because 
what you, you might think. You might think that I need to gain more. I need to have more for me to feel happy. I need to, I need to experience more. I need to go up higher in my career. I need to gather more. I and mean, that's what we naturally think. But the scripture says well, that's not why you're empty. That's not why you feel a feel, uh, sense of unfulfillment. No, the, the reason why you feel this way is because you haven't given yourself. The way to go up is to go down. The way to find your life is to lose it. This is the message of, of the Bible, and this is how Jesus lived. He left the form of God. He took on flesh, became, form, uh, became a servant. He experienced the humiliation, and God exalted him. The way we find life, where we, where we, the way we have life is to give it away, is to lose it. Um, I mean, I was thinking about this, and I think even for our church community, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, um, I think about 10 years ago, we had our first, after the year was over, we had our first, um, like, surplus, you know, the offering, tithing, you know, it's tight, and for that, but for some reason, that year, we, we had, I think, if I recall correctly, uh, 6,000. Uh, surplus at the end of the year. And so the leadership was talking and praying and we're thinking, you know, what, what, should, how should, we, what should we do? Should we put this in our savings? Should we think about having a building later? And so we went through uh, this debate and at the end, we just kind of said, you know, this is a surplus. Let's, let's give it away. And so I distinctly remember giving to our four partners at that time, um, yeah, uh, 1500 each. We just kind of said, hey, let's give to this person, this ministry, there are four, right? This ministry, that ministry. We gave it away. And I think, I could be wrong here, but maybe not every year, but, but almost every year, I think that's been the posture of like our church leadership. Let's, let's, God's blessed us so much. Let's, let's try to give it away if we can. And as we, from just my personally, as we had this posture of giving, giving it away, being generous with what God's given to us. I feel like God's blessed us that much more. And it keeps having, even this past year, we were in a place where we could give a significant amount away so that we can, we can help with uh, medical building in Cambodia. I mean, that's, that's in one example. So friends, maybe this is a season where, as you think about incarnation, about Christ, um, and you think about, why, why is my life so joyless? Rather than trying to figure out what you're lacking, think about what you could give it away. Like, think about the ways that you could pour out yourself, pour out your life. Because the paradigm, the Christian paradigm, Jesus' life is that he emptied himself fully and completely, and God exalted him. So that's number one. So we need to, we need to, yeah, we need to have faith in God's promises, faith in God's word. Secondly, lastly, we're done. We need to live in the fullness of God's glory. Now, let me see if I could do this right. Look at verse three with me. Uh, verse three says, uh, Paul says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That word conceit there, it's an interesting word because in the old, in the old uh, translation, the King James, it says uh, vain glory. It's an old word uh, that old uh, Christians used to use. And 
And it, the King James translates it as vain glory because in the Greek, it literally says empty glory. So I think this is what Paul is saying. And I think we could read it this way. Do nothing out of, or do nothing, or do nothing when you recognize, when, when there's emptiness in your soul. Uh, don't try to live out in a place of emptiness. What happens when you're empty? What happens when you're hungry with food? When you're empty, well, you try to eat. What happens when your car is empty of gas? Well, you need to fill your gas. Human beings, we crave glory because we're made in the image of God. There's this, in our souls, we need, like we, whether we recognize it or not, we need like God's, God's approval, God's presence, God's touch in our life. We are glory-starved. And because we're empty, we try to fill ourselves with things that we think will give us glory, success, I don't know, beauty, achievements, whatever it might be. We try to fill ourselves because we are glory-starved. So I think what Paul is saying is do nothing out of a place where you are starving for glory. Look, look the, the, the passage that we read last Sunday, John chapter 1 says this, when the Word became flesh, when Jesus came and dwelt among us, we have seen His glory, and glory as the one only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus came, He brought glory. We, we, we've seen God's glory in Christ. Look at, listen to John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer for us. And he's praying that we will be united. And this is his prayer. He says, do not, do not ask for, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. So this is prayer, right? We'll all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may, be, they may be one even as we are one. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the glory that I have, I've given to my disciples, given to you. What that means is we have in Christ, we have God's glory. We have God's presence. We know about this steadfast love that Moses only heard about. We know this. We read it in Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit. We know the steadfast love of God for us in Christ. We sense it. Like we know this. So the way we can give ourselves away radically, generously is when we are full of God's presence in our life. When God, full of grace and truth, Christ, when He comes and we walk with Him and we abide in Him and we experience the glory of God for us in Christ, that's when we can give things away radically because we are full already. We're not, we're not empty glory. See, we're not empty as God's people. No, we're we're full of God's glory. And now, that's something that we need to grab, take hold of daily. Right after this passage, Paul talks about, now work out your salvation. That means, this is who we are. We are people of glory. And we need to work that out. We need to spend time meditating on that. We need to spend time sitting 
And just being in His presence, being reminded of who we are in Christ, we're no longer people who are empty. No, we know, have experienced the glory of God. That's who we are. We're people of glory. Again, the the again, let me just the description that Moses, the God gave to Moses, right? God comes to Moses and says, "The Lord, the Lord, God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger." abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Moses only heard about this, but we know it. We are his people. In Christ, we have experienced this steadfast love of God for us. So friends, we can be radically generous we can empty ourselves. We can consider other people's needs before our own. We can think about other people and pray for them. We can do this because we are God's people, people who are full of His glory. This is who we are. So what we do you know, on Sundays is not to um, try to be something that we're not. No, this is who we are, we're God's people, people of glory. And so we pause and we recognize and we take hold of in faith the things that God has given to us already. That's what I want to do today as we come to the table. Let's come and remember what Christ has accomplished for us. This is Jesus' story, incarnation, humiliation, then exhortation. This is the paradigm for our life. And we could live this way if we take hold of who we are in Christ. Right, so let, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll have communion together. Dear God, we, uh, during this season, uh, so many things are happening. We have uh, family obligations. We, we need to perhaps um, try to arrange things, decorate things. Uh, but Lord, we want to pause and we want to make sure that we know who we are today. Uh, we are not people who are uh, grasping at things. We don't have to... Uh, yeah, take hold of things that, that no, people who don't know you do. Lord, we, we want to come and we want to recognize and remember uh, the outpouring of your grace upon our life. Uh, we want to remember the, the, the humility that you displayed. Although we can't fully compre- comprehend it, um, Lord, we want to celebrate, remember, and worship you because how humble you are. And we want to imitate you. We want to live like you, Jesus, because that's what you've called us to do. And we know that we can't do that on our own. We so much need you. Lord, we want to be people who move out and, and bring forth healing to broken relationships, broken world. Uh, that's what you called us to do. And so... God, um, pray that you would uh, yeah, fill us today, touch us, God, uh, so that we might be in a place where we can empty ourselves for others.
Amen. Um, Let's stand. Can we stand and we'll uh, read the Apostles' Creed, and this helps us to remember our faith and what we believe in, and then afterwards we'll take communion together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and the third day he rose again. As he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Now, this is a time for us to respond and just be in God's presence. And we could do that through communion as we come to the table. On the top, there's a wafer that reminds us of God's body, Jesus' body that was broken for us. The cup has juice that reminds us of his sacrificial blood that was shed for us. We do that. Uh, Pastor Jonathan's here. If you want to just receive prayer, just pray with someone. Please come up. We'd love to pray with you. Let's respond in worship, remembering what he has accomplished for us. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink from it for the forgiveness of your sins.